This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. Preparing for this week's episode was unexpectedly traumatic. For two nights, I sat and watched a piece of American history that I had lived through unfold on the screen, and I wasn't really ready for it. Like many Americans, maybe most Americans, I was in a state of shock for much of the presidency of George W. Bush. From the September 11th attacks, through the war in Iraq, and on to the financial crisis of 2008, this country was careening through an era of deep disruption and contending with a growing political divide. At the center of it all, as is often the case in this country, was the president. But it's difficult to have perspective on a presidency when you are sitting in the middle of the moment. Retrospect is required. We all knew this at the time, theoretically at least. This is why there were always questions about how the first presidency of the 21st century would be remembered. Would time exonerate W or damn him? An early draft of this history is found in that two-part documentary, which aired on PBS as part of the American Experience series. And of course, it's complicated. For this episode, I speak with the director of that documentary, Barrick Goodman, about how the presidency he found in archival footage and interviews differed from the one he experienced with the rest of us more than a decade ago. Joining him is one of the historians he interviews for the documentary, Robert Draper. Draper authored one of the first drafts of the George W. Bush presidency and is preparing to publish a follow-up this summer. Before we get to that conversation, though, I'm going to check in with Knut Berger, Crosscut's resident historian about anti-vaxxers from the 1920s. Also, just wanted to remind you about the Crosscut Talks virtual session we have coming up with Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Governor Inslee will be talking with Crosscut News and Politics editor Donna Blankenship about the state's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The event takes place on Tuesday, June 2nd at 11 a.m. For more information and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com events. Okay, on with the show. I've got Knut Berger here. Knut recently penned an article for Crosscut about the history of anti-vaccine sentiment in the Pacific Northwest. Knut, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks for having me. So, Knut, tell me, what is the furthest back that you were able to find anti-vaccine activism? Well, it goes back to the very beginning of inoculations in this country to the early 18th century. Cotton Mather, the Puritan fire and brimstone preacher, learned about inoculating for smallpox from slaves from Africa who had been practicing it there. And, you know, this was where you would take a little bit of the infection from smallpox, you would rub it into your skin, and it worked. But the pushback began almost immediately his followers and other people in conservative Boston at that time thought it was the devil's work, that you were putting poison, the devil's poison, into somebody's body. Vaccination worked extremely effectively through the first part of the 19th century, and people saw its benefits. And then as smallpox waned, people ceased getting vaccinated, and there seemed to be kind of more skepticism as the 19th century wore on. 
are there parallels between what people were saying then and the arguments that we're seeing today in response to the possibility of a vaccine for COVID-19? Absolutely. There were some people who, you know, believed it was against God's will to prevent disease. You should let things take their natural course. So there, there were people who had religious beliefs. But there was a strong, you know, feeling that it went against the American way. Uh, it impinged on people's liberty. There was a belief also that vaccines weren't safe, that inoculation wasn't safe. All of those arguments are present today in one form or another. You write that this denialism came to a head in the early 20th century. What was happening in the early 20th century that really gave rise to this? Influenza, the discovery of flu and the belief that vaccination could be developed to help prevent influenza was part of it. As cities became crowded and unsanitary, and there are many diseases that were rampant at the time, typhoid, diphtheria, and uh, whooping cough, measles. So you had, a, in the late 19th and early 20th century, you had a professionalizing of the public health and medicine. But you also had this pushback against, you know, don't tell us what to do and people being suspicious of experts. A number of states passed compulsory vaccine laws and said that everybody had to get vaccinated against, say, smallpox, all school children, and that kind of thing. And that started on the East Coast, and it proved very effective. By the time it sort of filtered to the West Coast, where people were <laughs> a little more libertarian and free-thinking and interested in patent medicines and alternative medicine and that kind of thing, there began to be uh, pushback. But it particularly caught fire in the early 20th century on the West Coast. Hmm. So what is it about the, I mean, the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest that makes it a good breeding ground for this kind of thought? Well, one of the interesting things is that, so you have medical authorities beginning to insist on compulsory vaccinations. This is pushing back against the sort of frontier spirit of people on the West Coast. But you also had a strong progressive movement here. The progressive movement was a check on authority. And so you had laws passed for initiatives and for referendums and for recalling public officials. There was in a sense that the public needed to check the power of government. And these were considered, uh, you know, very so socially liberal things. And they went along with women's suffrage. Prohibition was at one time a progressive cause. And a lot of progressive laws were passed on the West Coast. And as a result, I think you had two things. One is that government became, in a sense, more answerable to the people, more progressive. Women and others could have a say. And at the same time, it undermined the sort of white male establishment figures that decided what was good for you. Hmm. And the medical profession was a place where this really um, caught fire. Hmm. You do a good job of giving a face to this movement in your piece. You tell the story of an activist from Portland named Laura C. Little. Can you tell us her story? Tell us a little bit about her. Oh, Laura C. Little was a progressive uh, for the most part. She, uh, you know, was in favor of women getting the right to vote. 
she opposed the mandatory uh, sterilization law in Oregon, uh, eugenics law. She organized around that. She was also into alternative medicine. She believed that people should be able to heal themselves. And if you lived right and ate right and did all the right things, you wouldn't need medicine. As she had lost a son, she believed, to vaccination. Others say he died of diphtheria and didn't have anything to do with being vaccinated. But she believed this and made this her cause. She organized an effort to repeal the sterilization law in Oregon. She was successful, although later iterations of the law came back. So she wasn't ultimately successful. Hmm. And then she really picked up the anti-vaccine cause. She traveled around the West, you know, giving out pamphlets. And that was the Internet of the day where these, these you know, alternative booklets and pamphlets that were passed out. And in the era of the Spanish flu epidemic, she ended up in North Dakota passing out literature that criticized the U.S. Army. She believed that the Army was over-vaccinating and over-treating troops, and of course many troops at that point were dying of Spanish flu. And she was arrested under the World War I-era Espionage Act for essentially mutiny and treason. They believed that her anti-vaccination work was undermining morale. She was encouraging people not to report for military service. Those charges were dismissed, but, uh, you know, she, she came into great conflict with authority um, she left the region eventually, but went on to continue to promote the anti-vaccine cause. Canute, hmm. what's the takeaway here? What is the lesson that you learned from, from doing this history that we can apply to the current crisis? I think the lesson is that when you have something like a pandemic, it doesn't necessarily teach everybody, oh, bow down to public health. And even though demonstrably the science of public health is usually very positive, there can be backlash. And you see that now in the sense that there was a recent poll where 25% of the American people said they would not be vaccinated for COVID-19 if and when an effective vaccine is created. If you have 25% or more of the population, you'll never get to herd immunity. The lesson is you have to follow the science, but I think also the lesson is there are ongoing concerns that have been there from the very beginning about how our medical system is run, and you have to pay attention to that. You have to commit a lot to education. You can't just assume everybody is going to take your numbers and embrace them. Well, Canute, thank you so much for giving us some perspective on this. Thanks for being on Crosscut Talks. Thanks a lot, Mark. And now for a word from our sponsor, Alaska Airlines. Alaska is taking care to the next level with a renewed commitment to providing a higher standard of cleanliness and safety. From airport check-in to boarding, from takeoff to landing, next-level care involves COVID-19 preparedness plans and procedures developed with the FAA and CDC. This includes electrostatic disinfectant sprayers and onboard filters that remove 99.95% of airborne particles. Alaska is also putting proper social distancing procedures in place, requiring masks of employees and guests, 
providing sanitizing stations and wipes, reconfiguring seating arrangements, limiting in-flight services, and more. When you decide it's time to fly, Alaska is prepared to take your travels to the next level. Learn more at alaskaair.com slash nextlevelcare. Welcome back to Crosscut Talks. I'm speaking now with Barrick Goodman and Robert Draper. Barrick is the director of the recent two-part American experience film, George W. Bush, which chronicles the political history of the first American president of the 21st century. Robert is a historian, the author of Dead Certainty, the presidency of George W. Bush, and one of the expert voices that guide us through this presidency in Barrick's film. Barrick, Robert, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. I thought that this film was transfixing. It was also traumatizing to live through those eight years again. I don't think I was ready for it, but uh, but thank you, Barrick, for making this and Robert for lending your voice to it. I wanted to start with a really basic question, and that is why this president? What made each of you want to tell the story of this man? Barrick, why don't you go first? Well, the the film came from um, American Experience, the series I work for on PBS. They uh, do a series of presidential biographies, and they tend to want to wait until some of the kind of journalism is has done and some of the patents, sort of partisan passions have died down a bit, and scholarship has emerged. Books like Roberts, uh, which are written with a cooler head and and and, and ample time and 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 sort of a bigger view of the context in which the presidency happens. And it was determined that enough time had gone by in this case, maybe barely enough time, to look at Bush again, to put him in a different context, to understand, you know, the decision making, the um, the reasons for it, uh, to take him out of that partisan sort of mix that tends to cloud more than it does enlighten. Robert, your book came out pretty much at the end of the second term. When did you know you wanted to write about this president? I'm a Texas journalist and and had known Bush since he was governor and had spent a great deal of time with him during his governorship and then, um, frankly, followed him to Washington uh, when he became president. So, frankly, my biography of Bush dead certain grew out of a dissatisfaction of the existing biographies because I felt that there they either fell into the category of hagiography or of of people who viewed him as this kind of cowboy, really, you know, sort of operating on the same caricature that Bush himself promoted. And I always felt that, that Bush didn't give himself enough credit, that he was a much more complex character than, than um, he revealed. Bush's presidency is, um, is going to be, you know, a much studied presidency, if only for the Iraq war, immensely consequential. And at the time that I got the contract to do it in late 2004, um, it was already clear that, uh, you know, Bush's presidency would be viewed in at best mixed terms. And so sorting it out uh, and sorting out this man was, you know, something that I just took upon as a mission as as someone who'd known him, you know, going back to the mid 90s. And so, Barrick, when you were coming at this project, what was your perception of the Bush presidency? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'd been influenced by the stereotypes and the caricatures of, of this man. And, and as Robert said, it, it, it's a caricature that Bush himself fed. And I think 
uh, one tends to underestimate how brilliant a politician George W. Bush was. And, th- and that persona of the sort of uh, backslapping um, Texas cowboy was, was very much intentional as a political tool. It, he was uh, a, a really a masterful retail politician on the, on the level with Bill Clinton. You know, very few others in, in history have, have been able to connect with people like, like George W. Bush. But the, but the downside of, of it is that it, it kind of created and nurtured a stereotype about him that really wasn't who he was. Um, and we relied on books like Robert's to, and people like Robert to help us get through that stereotype and that, um, that caricature to understand the real guy who was much more complex, much grayer, and much more intelligent, frankly, and decisive, frankly, than, than, the, than the popular stereotype. I would add one wrinkle to what Barack has said, which is to this day, there are people who still believe that Bush is, is kind of a dummy. You know, the, the paradox of George W. Bush was that he was both um, intellectually lazy and intellectually aggressive, depending on when, you know, what the circumstances were and what engaged him. I would just say that this is kind of a fatal combination, a kind of hubris mixed with a kind of intellectual laziness and, and disengagement that really led us into, you know, terrible calamities because, you know, a president that both thinks he knows everything and then doesn't know anything, and that's an exaggeration in this case, is is a problem, you know, for the country. It is axiomatic that presidents grow on the job, that nothing quite prepares you for the presidency. Um, this was the case with, you know, with with Clinton, with Obama, and certainly the case with George W. Bush. By 2007, 2008, he was a very different president. Unfortunately, the die was cast for his presidency. In a lot of ways, um, what was already baked in were the um, fateful decisions that he made in his first term when he was still, uh, you know, I think of the belief that um, less was more, that the details didn't really matter, that his gut instincts could supersede the intelligence, and that is, I think, the tale, unfortunately, the Bush presidency. Hmm. Watching the film, it became really clear to me that the narrative here is one of a presidency interrupted, right? This is a domestic president who then is thrust into a foreign policy positioning that he just can't get out of. But then there's this other aspect to it. And this is what really struck me. And this is not really something that was telegraphed in the film, but it's something that I gleaned from it and just sort of seeing the images of him in the days around and following September 11th. He appeared to be a man in shock. I I didn't see that at the time. I think it was because I was in shock and we all were in shock. But from, from everything that both of you know about him, what kind of a psychological toll did the events of September 11th have on him and on the presidency. Robert, what, what did you see? I, I've actually spent a great deal of time chewing on this because I'm, a, a book of mine about uh, Bush's decision to invade Iraq will be um, coming out at the end of July. What became evident to me, contrary to the notions of some who believe that Bush came in 
dead set on um, going to war with Saddam was that, in fact, he really intended on a domestic presidency. I mean, he would have been delighted for Saddam Hussein to be decapitated somewhere along the way, but he didn't really want to go to war. He wanted to, you know, enact tax cuts. He wanted education reform. He wanted to do two or three other things. And and 9-11 really changed the psychology of all that. And part of it was that Though plenty of intelligence had been produced to suggest that an attack was imminent of some sort, the president, and it should definitely be underscored, all the people around him, Cheney, Condi Rice, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the rest, were really trapped in Cold War thinking and and themselves uh, believed that this was kind of, you know, a fantastical notion of the Clinton administration, one of those obsessions that was Clintonian in nature and therefore worth just discarding altogether. Their figuring was that, uh, okay, there are terrorist attacks here and there. It's kind of the cost of doing business overseas. An embassy might get bombed. That's terrible. We'll do what we can to strike them. But come on, these guys who live in caves are really going to like it. be a threat to our homeland. None of them was prepared for that. And so 9-11 was truly a shock to them, a shock to Bush himself. I think that, that the footage that we see at Sarasota, Florida, on the morning of 9-11, when he gets the news, when Andy Card whispers it in his ear, is a remarkably human moment of a guy who is caught off guard, a, a, a guy doing his best to figure out, how should I handle this? I'm here in front of a bunch of children. I don't want to, like, you know, gallop off. I want to, I want to project a um, sense of calm. But in fact, I'm not calm inside, and I have no idea who did this to us, and I have no idea what it means for my presidency, except that everything is irrevocably changed. And and that moment of uncertainty and, and, and frankly, of fear, I think prefigures everything that comes after, because the notion that we weren't prepared before then is the on-ramp to we must be prepared for whatever comes after and the kind of hyper-alertness that was the state of the Bush presidency after that moment. I would also say that I came to feel that there was a bit of guilt in Bush after 9-11 that he hadn't caught this. And that manifested in his case in, in a determination, maybe an overweening determination, to prevent it from happening again. He would do anything in his power to prevent what they all believe was a certainty of another attack. Bush was a compassionate man, and he took these deaths very personally. He took this attack very personally. And I think it was really from his heart that he wasn't going to be responsible again by his own inaction for another such attack. And there's one other factor that's very interesting and complicated, and that's his father and the shadow of his father and the desire to prove in some way that he was up to the job Bush was all his life wanting to prove that he was a man that his father could be proud of. And in this case, maybe, you know, in some way that played into his decision to try to kind of finish the job that his father... And, you, you know, you can take that psychology too far, but I do think it played a part. A lot of momentum was pushing him towards this Iraq decision, which in hindsight looks like such a terrible, dumb, nitwitty thing to do. But at the time, and this is what we try to do as biographers, try to understand why he made the decision he did at the time, doesn't exonerate him from the mistake, but it does help explain it. Before 9-11, Bush wasn't getting good press. This is a guy who lost the popular vote. May not mean much these days, but, but it meant something back then. And there was a, a sense that he did not quite fill the chair. 
then after 9-11, George W. Bush rose to the occasion in a way that, that I think a lot of people who didn't know him could not have predicted. But his moral clarity, his recognition that, look, you know, OK, we can we can talk all we want about um, how people become Islamic extremists and what role America plays in that. But the reality is that America did not deserve to have hijackers bomb the World Trade Center and kill 3,000 innocent people. By and large, so said George W. Bush, particularly in his very, very notable uh, September 20th joint session before Congress speech, which ranks as the greatest speech of his presidency, and really one of the great speeches of the last, I don't know, 50 years or so among White House presidents, that, that we have been, by and large, a force for good in the world. Um, we did not have this coming to us, contra what Saddam Hussein said on September the 12th. What he did then was kind of flatten what was what was an ambiguous, you know, um, confusing moment for America. He sort of flattened um, into, look, here's the way it is. You know, we're a good country. We were attacked. The people who attacked us were evil. We will get the evildoers. Um Muslims are not by their nature evildoers. This is not a war against Islam, but um, there is a line in the sand now being drawn. Uh, you're either with us or, or, or you're with the people who did this to us. And that kind of moral clarity set the stage for um, the next certainly two years of his presidency up to and including the invasion of Iraq. So in the film, there's a, a real focus on when Bush says that we will not discriminate between those who make these attacks and the countries that harbor them. Was that a part of who George Bush was or was that coming from his advisors? I'll just I'll answer that. I mean, it was 100 percent Bush. Cheney and others may have subscribed to it, but it was notionally and aggressively George W. Bush. And he didn't want it walked back. You know, when the State Department and, you know, um, compatriots overseas expressed concern about it. He said, no, we're sticking with this. That is the way it is. You are with us or you are, or, or you're with the terrorists. If you're harboring the terrorists, you might as well be the terrorists yourself. That was vintage Bush. And, and that is very revelatory of who he was. I mean, he is this kind of reductive guy. You know, there's, there's the cowboys with the white hats and the bad guys with the black hats. And you're either with us or you're against us. The problem with that is it kind of elides any nuance and it, it makes, uh, it, it, it kind of commits us in a way to a kind of um, super aggressive foreign policy that may have had Iraq as a sort of inevitable outcome. Bush was his own man. Often Cheney in particular would work a decision around so that the outcome was something that he desired but usually he was pushing against an open door. Usually Bush already believed the same thing and Cheney would just encourage him to kind of get to the logical end result of his own beliefs. It wasn't like he was some Svengali kind of twisting Bush's mind at all. Wouldn't you agree mm. with that, Robert? 100%. In other presidencies, there is someone in the room with a different point of view. Someone in the room who says, yeah, but what about this? In fact, what happened was that Vice President Cheney and others, most notably Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, they created kind of a box in which the only possibility after 9-11 was to go after Saddam Hussein. The role that I think they played and is not that they introduced these ideas and forced them, you know, 
force them to completion, but rather that they pushed away any alternative ideas and kept him as focused as he could be on the notion of invading a country thousands of miles away from where al-Qaeda had been harbored in Afghanistan. And one last thing is that this is a president who allowed himself to be boxed in in that way. He didn't he didn't push, he didn't dig, he didn't seek out opposing viewpoints or examine the details or cross-examine the advice he was getting or ask the people who came to him with certain assertions where they got them and how sound they were. And, you know, he did a little bit, but he would be satisfied too quickly with the answers. Hmm. Did he lack confidence? Was that what this was? Because sometimes a good manager trusts his people but also, um, you know, a weak manager can rely too much on the people that he brings onto his team. What was it that made him so trusting? Well, my belief was that it was intellectual laziness. He was an intelligent man who wouldn't become intellectually engaged until the battle was almost lost. That was the case in the election of 2000 when uh, uh, he just figured he would waltz his way to the nomination and then McCain cold cocks him in the New Hampshire primary winning by something like 17 points and it was only then when he had the whiff of defeat in his nostrils that he really became you know a, a an engaged politician he just figured you know that it would be handed to him and I think that was the case as well with with Iraq I mean he he was of the belief that um, they had a good war plan that Iraqis would coalesce around democracy. Post-war would be a really, you know, quick ordeal, uh, if an ordeal at all. He just simply wasn't prepared for that, though there were plenty of warning signs. It's just that he wasn't intellectually engaged. And, and, and on the matter of Hurricane Katrina, and he did a briefing just before landfall with Michael Brown and others, and um, and he had just done a a really, really um, time-consuming and physically-consuming bike ride. He was kind of exhausted and uh, listened to them for a few minutes and basically said, you know, you guys have got it. I'm going to, uh, I trust you with it. And then he went out and hung out by the pool. He really learned after that moment, I mean, when um, the charge of incompetence began to emblazon itself on his presidency as a result of Katrina. I think he then he began to learn. Then he began to learn like every name of every person in every parish in Louisiana. Similarly, as Iraq was going downhill, he began to learn the names of like, you know, every single figure who was Kurdish and Shia and Sunni uh, of, of importance in the Iraqi governing council. But before all that, he just figured, you know, this is beneath my pay grade. This is, this is not, a, you know, not important to me. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'll leave this to others. I would just add this, that Bush had a fairly simple moral code. And part of that moral code was loyalty, that he believed that, you know, having made a decision and appointed someone, it was morally the correct thing to do to defend that person and to display loyalty to that person beyond a point where that person probably deserved loyalty. It was a combination of being loath to admit a mistake and having appointed that person. And in the case of Brownie, I think a longstanding relationship, he was felt he should be loyal to his friends and that he should defend them. And even when they done, you know, clearly, you know, incompetent things. So 
it's both definitely intellectual laziness, but I also think on the positive side, there is this instinct in him to be loyal to his to his friends. But a part of this is learning how to be a leader. And Bush got a late start. He didn't enter politics until his 40s. There's a turning point in the presidency after taking a drubbing in the 2006 midterms where Bush really takes the reins. He starts attending more briefings, he orders the surge, and then at the end, you have the response to the financial crisis. So if that president was the one who served the entire eight years, would the presidency have been different? I personally doubt that even the later Bush would have made a different decision vis-a-vis Iraq, simply because at the time, it wasn't a very controversial decision um, in, in his administration. We were told over and over again by people who were there that there was simply no doubt in anyone's mind that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, despite the fact that the intelligence clearly was flimsy, clearly was erroneous, clearly was coming from sources that should have been tossed out, and and even people in the CIA at the time knew that. Nevertheless, at at the higher levels, there just was a kind of groupthink that was so strong that it really, it wasn't that tough a decision. Even when the world was telling him, don't do this, and his own father and his father's most trusted advisors were telling him, don't do this, he, I don't, Robert, I don't think he really doubted it, did he? He didn't really, he didn't really wrestle that hard with that decision. Well, you're getting me to like disclose what's in my book, you know, and so I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> yes. I'm, no, I know I'm actually, no, I'm actually going to not do that. But, uh, <laughs> but what I'll say is that, um, that in the main, you're right, but that, um, that, that the paradox was that there were opportunities for other options to be made available, and people were convinced that Bush made up his mind, so they didn't present those opportunities. So this is also a film just about a transformational period in American history. Barak, in your interviews with everybody for this film, do you get a sense of really how this period changed the American people at all? Yeah. How did the American people emerge from the Bush presidency? Well, I think you, it's the Bush presidency and it's 9-11. But I think what maybe this presidency did, and it's a negative legacy, is that it eroded trust between the American people and their government. I think the American people emerged from the trauma of the Iraq war, doubting the word, the, the implicit trust they had in their own leaders. I mean, if, the, if leaders could lie to them or be so gullible that they would be so easily duped uh, into into such a catastrophic mistake. Why should we trust anything they say? And I think that festering, you know, feeling encouraged and, and, and fanned by Tea Partiers and so on has really b- become very ugly and, in, in, you know, in, in years since. Hmm. Robert, you spent time with Bush at the end of his presidency. Did you get the sense that he had a direction for his party? You've written about President Obama not really having a vision for the Democratic Party. Was it the same for Bush? The same. Bush was not a party person. I mean, it's, and, and by that I mean that he was a lifelong Republican, but he just didn't care about party politics. He wasn't one of those guys who donated frequently and would campaign for lots of different Republicans. Bush was never a party guy. Now, his consigliere, Karl Rove, was and is and, you know, has a real stake in the GOP's fortunes and its future, but that was never Bush's thing. Hmm. 
two weeks ago, George Bush, he put out a message, a video message calling for unity uh, and to partisanship and was swatted down by the current president, President Trump, and really didn't get much support from uh, from Republicans. Is there an opportunity lost in not listening to a president who went through a number of crises in this moment right now? Is there room for George Bush in the Republican Party now? I personally don't know what the Republican Party is anymore. I mean, you wouldn't have called the Bush camp moderate back in the day. They were they were the conservative end of the Republican spectrum. And now almost all of them are anti-Trumpers, regard Trump as being um, outside the norms of the Republican Party, of conservatism in general. If Trump is a Republican, if Trump is a conservative, what does that even mean anymore? You know, you, you hear guys like people like Michael Gerson, David Frum, who, who are very, very angry and um, dismissive of Trump and really speaking for kind of a, a bygone Republican Party that doesn't exist anymore. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's a terrible mistake not to listen to past presidents. This guy doesn't listen to anyone. <laughs> um, but George W. Bush, the people around him have a lot to say about how to handle a crisis. They did learn, as we've discussed, they learned a lot from the mistakes they made. And um, I think for the most part, He's conducted himself admirably in his post-presidency. He hasn't done, done a lot of talking, but when he has, it's always judged and measured and helpful. And, you know, I, I think it's a grave mistake not to listen to, to, to folks like him. I totally agree with Barrick that this is really not Bush's party anymore. It's the party of Trump. And, and at least for the moment, the Republican Party has been hijacked by Donald Trump. There's really no voice that he can offer, and I would be stunned if I were to learn that Donald Trump had solicited uh, the opinions of Bush. I'm sure that he views Bush as being, you know, much more of the stripe of Barack Obama uh, than than of someone he considers loyal to him. Hmm. And being students of this moment in American history, and a moment that is just rife with crises, um, and living in this moment right now. Are there are there lessons that you have pulled from kind of from from the the first decade of this century that we like are forgetting right now? Like what are, are, are is there anything that we can take from those early years of this century and apply them to the crisis that we're going through right now? You know, certainly one of the early moments of unity of the century was on September 20th, 2001, when in the joint session speech before Congress, President George W. Bush really did rally Americans, uh, Republican and Democrat alike. I mean, I still get choked up even at this moment thinking about how galvanized we were, how inseparable we were. But that's simply not where we are now. It's not only that we have a very divided country and two parties that think very differently, but also that we have a president who seeks division and seeks to profit from division. Yeah, and I, I would just say that we forget at our peril the importance of character in a president. And whatever else you say about Bush, as we've mentioned several times, he was a man of really sterling character. And a lot of the nostalgia I felt in making this film, even though we were quite critical of Bush, it was 
you know, inescapable that this was a decent man who wanted out of the best instincts to heal the country, to make amends for his own mistakes, to improve the lives of the people. He didn't pick at the scab the way that this current president does. He didn't force confrontation. He didn't, it wasn't his instinct to divide. It was his instinct. It was his instinct to unite. And it may have been the last time we were united as a people was on September 11th, you know, 2001 and the weeks and months after. It took a long time for that unity to fall apart. I mean, his approval ratings were very high for a long period of time. And that was a, an outcome of the sense of all of us pulling together. And, and it's, it's really, it is sad. It really does choke you up to remember that in, in light of where we are now with a president who, who doesn't care about doing the decent thing. Um, and I know that sounds ideological and partisan, but it, as a historian, you just, you know, you, you, you engage with the character of your subject. And this was a man of really high character. Well, uh, and, and, and like one example of that, uh, it's a small but telling example, is that in the run-up to war in Iraq, the president made the considered decision to keep his senior advisor, his, his consigliere, Karl Rove, out of all the national security meetings. Rove didn't have clearance, and he just, you know, he was allowed to go to the White House Iraq group, these messaging meetings, but but he beyond that, was not privy to and was far from a decision maker, you know, part of the decision making apparatus in the run up to war. You know, contrast that to um, a president who asks people, you know, um, will you be loyal to me? You know, an FBI director, for example, who expects loyalty in the intelligence community, in the Department of Justice. It's hard to imagine any decision this president would make that isn't part of a political calculation where George W. Bush, again, for all of his foibles, believed that for a grave decision like going to a war, politics should stay out of it. And as, you know, the symbolic, you know, gesture of that, but also a substantive gesture, kept his political man out of the room. Hmm. So, Robert, in the film, you say that the Bush presidency will be a bit of a riddle for historians. Does Trump complicate that riddle or does he bring clarity? Uh, well, he complicates it in the sense that for some people, there was no riddle at all before Trump. It was just simply this presidency was a disaster. The man led us to a war that was catastrophic. He left uh, office an incredibly unpopular president and why should we rehabilitate him? Then in comes Trump, and we remind ourselves that, oh, you know what? Surrounding yourself with able-bodied professionals is meaningful. Being a decent person who keeps politics out of, like, critical national security decisions is meaningful. And so, you know, inadvertently, um, Trump has created complications in assessments of George W. Bush's presidency that otherwise, for some, might have been very, very straightforward. I mean, I think even for a lot of Republicans, there was a sense of fatigue that though they really, really loved this man, that he had, for whatever reason or another, been led astray and, uh, you know, that it was time to move on to Mitt Romney or whomever else. So, no, it's a um, Trump has, I think, created complications, but they're welcome complications because they they remind us that they're, you know, a president is more than the sum total 
of one act he commits. Barrick, do you have any thoughts on that? I just always ask myself, would a different man have reacted differently? Do we know that that's true? In other words, very few presidents were faced with the kind of challenge that this one was right off the bat. And very few presidents had as little experience in in public office as this one did. And so you don't want to let him off the hook. And this is the kind of challenge we had as filmmakers. It's sort of what tone do we set and where do we focus our camera and, and what stories do we really dig into? You don't want to let him off the hook. You want to be hard on him. You want to really dig down on the on the errors, but you also keep having to ask yourself, you know, is it fair? This guy, you know, almost no president faced what this president faced, not just, you know, 9-11, but everything after, you know, it's just a series of very, very, very tough challenges. And so one, one has to weigh that in the balance when you're talking about legacy and you're talking about how a president is judged by history and so forth. Many presidents go years without facing, our current president, without facing a real crisis like the one that walloped Bush on the head nine months into his presidency. Hmm. Okay, I have one more question. And this one is uh, maybe a little reductive, so I apologize. But I can't help, especially with the fact that I know that, Barrick, you've spent so much time working on this film, like looking at endless hours, I'm sure, of footage. You know, this was a presidency that was really defined by images. Like, there are so many just striking images, whether it is September 11th, Mission Accomplished, Fallujah, Katrina with the president, you know, peering out of that window. And, and, and I wonder what image do you feel like is, is the most representative of, of Mm. this period of time for us? Wow. That's a good and tough question to answer. Um, I mean, I think Some one would of the say unfair. Well, no, I think one of the one of the best images is something that Robert already alluded to, which is the image of Andy Card whispering in Bush's ear in the elementary school in, in Booker T. Washington Elementary School in Florida. I mean, because it captured both the unprecedented nature of what had just happened, as Robert said, it foreshadowed the confusion that would, you know, come. But it also, you could see in his face the deeply personal way he reacted to that. It, it, was, it was heartbreaking for him. It, it was a realization of not only what his presidency had now suddenly become, but also of the tragedy of the event. And that never left Bush. I mean, it wasn't, this president would have reacted, our current president would have reacted, how is this going to impact my political standing? For Bush, it was not that at all. It was, how am I going to do the right thing here? How am I going to avenge this? How am I going to prevent it from happening again? All the weight of that is striking him all at once. So I would say that for me, that moment, and we, t- we linger on that moment in the film, is maybe the most kind of searing moment for me, uh, the takeaway from the film. And I do think it was very unfair of Michael Moore to make a big deal about how many minutes passed. Can you imagine? I mean, not only are you worried about the kids, but this is... This is the greatest attack ever launched on the United States soil. You need a few minutes to figure out what you're going to say about it. And it was deeply unfair to, to pick on that as being some kind of evidence of his weakness, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
So well, Robert, the, uh, how about you? Yeah, for me, so I'll give you the image the Bush administration um, would like and the image that I think is the one they wouldn't like, but that is the way the world will view the Bush administration. The one they would like is of Bush in the days after September 11th when he went to visit New York and he's there with the bullhorn and standing there around the firemen saying, you know, the people who did this to us will hear from us soon. And that was this moment of conviction and maybe even bravado. But it was when, to so many people, this president had found his voice. And I think that, you know, if you talk to Bush's allies, the people who, who you know, from his administration, who still are very close to him, that's the one they would proffer. But the one that I suggest that the world will remember will actually be one of any, let's say, 20 or so photos you could pick from Abu Ghraib. And, uh, you know, because that is, uh, those are images of, of, um, of Iraq gone utterly, chaotically, cataclysmically out of hand, um, where uh, we have become the jailers, we have become the torturers, we have become everything that the Middle East feared that we would be when we invaded Iraq. It is the precise opposite of what Paul Wolfowitz and President Bush and others had been saying would become of, uh, you know, a liberated Iraq. And that instead projected an image of imperialism, of lawlessness, you know, that it looked like something that could have come out of um, Idi Amin in Uganda or the Democratic Republic of Congo under, under Mobutu. It happened that because those images occurred in the summer of 2004 and were quickly pushed back against through a, a um, swift boat campaign against John Kerry that Bush managed to survive that. But in almost any other situation, that would have cost someone their presidency. And it remains, I think, seared in the collective consciousness of people throughout the globe when they consider the Bush presidency. Robert Draper, Barrett Goodman, thank you both so much for coming on and talking about the Bush presidency. Robert, looking forward to your book coming out. Appreciate both of you being on the show. Thanks for being on Crosscut Talks. Sure thing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Talks. This week's episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.